Well, good morning, church, and welcome as we uh, continue our study through 1 John, Walking in the Light. This is part 20. The title this morning is Knowing God and Knowing You Are Loved by God. Knowing God and Knowing You Are Loved by God. And we're at 1 John chapter 4, picking it up at verse 13. 1 John 4, 13 to 21. Get a Bible and uh, follow along as we study this morning. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. We spent two Sunday mornings on that phrase. 14. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So, we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. So just because God is loving, we're not to think that there's no judgment. Because as he is, so also we are in this world. 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because, well, he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. Wow, that's not me. That's John and the Holy Spirit. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now, when you work through that text, there are some phrases that just give it incredible strength. I'm thinking like 13, we know that we abide in him and he in us. I'm thinking about 16. We have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. Or 17, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. So those aren't just expressions of of some kind of wishful thinking, some kind of mystic, bleary-eyed thinking, or some kind of quest for self-esteem. Those are words of certainty. We know. We've come to know. We may have confidence. I mean, those are words, those are words you can kind of lean on. They'll, they'll hold you up when everything else seems to collapse. John has come to know something for sure. That's what he's saying. He has experienced it. It isn't just something wistful in his dreams or longings. He has seen it. He has witnessed what God has done for him in Christ. So this isn't just some philosophy or therapy. It's not just in his mind. The things he's talking about, he saw in solid historic events that actually happened. 
Some things are just matters of opinion. You like beef. I like chicken. Neither one of us is wrong. We just have differing tastes. Other things aren't a matter of opinion, but they aren't very relevant to daily living either. You think it's cold on the far side of the moon. I think it's hot on the far side of the moon. Only one of us is right. It's not a matter of opinion, but it also doesn't affect my daily living very much. But there's another category of things. Other things aren't subjects of opinion, and they do matter greatly. What, is, what, has, what has God done to save us? How can we know? How can we know for certain that he's done it? And most important of all, even if God has done something in others, how can I know he will do it for me? So that's where we're getting at in this text. The issue of this text can be boiled down to knowing God and knowing you are loved by God and knowing you are saved by God. So in the long view of things, those are the three most vital issues for any thinking person. I have, I have only one point in this teaching. We'll look at more next week. So there's just one point, but I'll unpack it in, in kind of different ways. So point number one, only Jesus Christ can bring Father God's abiding present, presence into our lives. Only Jesus Christ can bring Father God's abiding presence into our lives. The text I want to look at is 1 John 4, verses 14 to 16. 1 John 4, 14 to 16. Look at these words. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Okay, there it is. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him. And he in God. So, so we have come to know, notice that solid word, and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So John's pretty clear about the intent of Father God in sending Jesus Christ, God the Son, incarnate, into this world. 14, he sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. The fact that the Father sent the Son doesn't express any unwillingness on the part of the Son, but it does focus our attention on the plan, the deep desire motivating the Father's actions. He wants to save the world, the whole world, not just some of it. I think pondering that truth carefully, it has an encouraging effect on our hearts. He says that in verse 16, doesn't it? So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. That's really profound. We know about God's love. We have come to believe, he says. That means rely on God's love when we see his, his saving reach to us in Jesus Christ. 
So 16, verse 16, is it's kind of like the logical fruit of 14 and 15. You, you and I can grow in assurance when we know this. And we can't grow in assurance just by thinking vague, pleasant thoughts about God and how nice he might be. We can certainly see something of his might. We can see his endless power. Paul talks about this in Romans. We can certainly see something of his blazing holiness. We can see something of his justice as we gaze upon his law. But none of those things really brings me assurance. In fact, they rob me of assurance. Who can, who can stand before a God like that? Who qualifies? No, no, no. Look, look to Jesus on the cross. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. That's what John says. See the, the beautiful givenness he sent, the sending. He sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. This is where you and I can, well, we can come to know God's love. We can come to rely on the love that he has for us. Just, just put your finger under those words in verse 14. The Father sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. But there's a problem. I mean, the beautiful simplicity of that clear, uh, life-giving sentence, it's, it's kind of hard for people like we to ingest. It's hard for me to believe, not just acknowledge, but to really drink in that, that all I have to do to partake of God's saving grace is just reach out and rely on it. In spite of all the doctrinal statements and creeds, this isn't the view of God that most religions have, for sure. We find it hard to comprehend a God who sends his son to die for bad people like we, and then says, here, here's all my forgiveness, here's all my love, here's all my grace, here's eternal life in my son. Please, just believe it. Just rely on it. We have our doubts. And there's a reason. The, the reason is for all our talk about salvation by grace rather than by works, Especially if we have church background, we've heard sermons, we read our Bibles. I mean, we, we know just how important holiness is. And even if we didn't have preachers sort of harping on it all the time, we still would have to come to terms with some pretty clear pronouncements in the Scriptures. Here's just like a little collection of these verses. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness. Look at this. Without which... No one will see the Lord. Ouch. Ephesians 1, 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Pretty important. Ephesians 5, 27. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. 1 Peter 1.15, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. No doubt about it. This holiness, it, it's pretty important. 
That much is obvious. But, but, but how, how can we, at the same time, both magnify the biblical importance of holiness in those texts and hundreds of others, and at the same time exalt the freeness the Father sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Receive, rely, believe. Well, the issue we have tends to be this. Which is it? I think those two ideas look like they're in conflict, and yet the Bible apparently doesn't. So how do we come to terms with this? It's a huge issue. And I think you can only untangle this apparent mystery by starting with a central issue. Maybe it's the question here. Here's the question boiled right down. Here's the issue. What makes people holy and devoted to the Lord in the first place? Okay, so there's the starting point. What makes people holy and devoted to the Lord in the first place? And the answer you give to that question kind of shines a light on everything else. Well, Pastor Don, you want people to be holy, tell people about sin, tell people about punishment, and that'll make them holy. Well, it might not. I mean, it will certainly make them feel guilty about their sin, and there is a proper place for feeling guilty about sin. We need to feel guilty about sin We don't always. There are whole passages of Scripture that just help me identify my sin. I know some things are sinful. So do you. Murder, theft, child abuse, rape, homosexuality, lying. But there are other things. Worldly ambition. Pride. Materialism. Sins of omission, things we should have done and didn't. I mean, these sins aren't even on the radar of our culture, for sure, and not many Christians. So, yes, I mean, there's certainly a place for telling people like you and people like me what our sins are. But remember the question we're looking at. What makes people holy? and devoted to the Lord in the first place. And as important as it is, proclaiming warnings about sin and judgment, I don't think it will make people holy. It it only promotes holiness indirectly because it might bring people to repentance. Preaching about sin opens the door of repentance for grace. And that grace makes people holy holy. No, Pastor Don, tell them about the Ten Commandments. Tell them about what God expects them to do. That'll make them holy. Maybe not. The Bible says that with the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's what the law does. It shows me how far I fall short of the glory of God. That's Paul's whole point in the early part of the book of Romans, especially chapter 3. The law is powerless to save. It's powerless to make righteous. Read it for yourself. It's in Romans 3.20. For by works of the law, look at this, no human being will be justified in his sight. How many people will be saved by the law? None. 
None. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's what the law does. Well, well, then, Pastor Don, where are we going here? What will make people holy if it's so important? The Bible does tell us that. In a very important text, Titus 2, 11 to 13. For the grace of God has appeared. Isn't that a wonderful description of the coming of Jesus? He doesn't use Jesus' name. He just says the grace of God has appeared. So when it was made visible, manifested. He's talking about the incarnation. Bringing salvation for all people. Look at these words. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope. That's the blessed hope is the second coming of Jesus, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. This is, by the way, you ever want to see where Jesus is clearly called God, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the grace of God has appeared. What does it do? Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives. So grace, when it appeared, that's in the coming of Jesus. Our text in 1 John 4, God sent his son to be the savior of the world. They're talking about exactly the same thing. Grace changes the heart to want to please God. It won't won't be perfect in this world, but it's growing in this world. We're being transformed in this world. It changes the heart to want to please God. That's the testimony, by the way, of both the Old and the New Testaments. What I'm outlining to you isn't some new optional understanding of the Christian faith. It is the gospel. I I know I'm kind of laboring this point, but... I want to make sure we all really get this. I mean, deeply get this first point because all the other things we'll look at later on build on this foundation. Law can never be the fuel for the Christian life. Grace is the fuel for the Christian life. Law will never make people holy. Grace changes the heart. Law doesn't give you assurance. Grace gives you assurance. Now, none of that makes holiness unimportant. That is not what I'm teaching here. It doesn't belittle holiness. It deepens it. It magnifies it by reaching all the way down into my desires, my affections, my motivations. If you stop and think about it, you'll see that we've been singing about this in the church for hundreds of years. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." The hymn writer caught something very profound in those words. We don't think of grace and fear as kind of fearing God. We we don't think of those things belonging together, but they do. They're constantly in the same theological marriage bed. When grace has done its work, even as it starts to do its work in my heart, there's nothing I fear more than displeasing God. 
his saving grace in Jesus Christ. It becomes my motive for presenting myself to him in holiness. This, by the way, is the root of one of the most famous texts in the Bible. Look what Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, look at, by the mercies of God. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How's that going to happen? Up here, the mercies of God. Grace is the soil in which this kind of transformation takes place. Transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The striking feature of Paul's words is he makes his his whole appeal for them to be living sacrifices. Sacrifices. He says, why would you do that? Well, the mercies of God that you've received. That's what God's mercies do in our lives. This is why we should shun the world like the plague. This is why we should present our physical bodies in service, regardless of the sacrifice, the cost, the pain. God's mercies are the fuel for those kinds of changes. Now, that's very explicit there, but it's implied in less direct ways, even in the Old Testament. Serve the Lord with, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his, his covenant. So notice again, fear and joy, fearing God and having God make his ways known to us. Those things are tied together, even in the Old Testament. So here's where we are in this teaching. We're almost done. Laid down a principle. The principle is this. Whether you look at the Old Testament or the New, in growing ways, day by day, only grace changes people. Only grace makes them holy. Only grace takes out a heart of stone, puts in a tender heart. That means a responsive heart, a sensitive heart. Or to say it a little bit differently, if you have this concept of the grace of God in Jesus and all it's doing is making you lazy and indifferent toward worldliness and sin, you have not received grace. Every Christian has to test his heart with that biblical truth. Let me show you one more passage from the lips of Jesus that I love. Jesus is the speaker. You'll know these words from the Sermon on the Mount. This is is Luke's account. It's abridged. And he has an addition that only Luke records. Luke 12, 27 to 32. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I tell you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, tomorrow's thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, 
For all the nations of the world seek after these things. Your father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. And then Luke adds these words. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. We should be grateful for those words. It's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And notice, just notice this. Now, look at this text again. Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And what happens when God gives the kingdom? Grace does this. It changes the heart so that these people actually seek his kingdom. Grace is what changes the heart to make us seekers of the kingdom. But only Luke records those words in his condensed version of the Sermon on the Mount. They they come in the context, clearly, of Jesus' words about fear and worry. I mean, we know people worry about lots of things. They fear lots of things. But deep in their hearts, maybe what we fear most, even if we can't put it into words, we fear not being good enough to meet God. Not having what it takes to get into the kingdom. And into this kind of fear and despair, God the Son comes and says, but it, but it, Don, it's your Father's good pleasure just to give you the kingdom. Please, please see the beautiful simplicity in that sentence. It's, Jesus knows what he's talking about. Your Father just, it's his pleasure. He just wants to give it to you. Just here, here it is. Take it. You ever had anybody give you something really wonderful and they actually seemed to enjoy giving it as much as you enjoyed receiving it and you almost, you almost feel a bit of disbelief and then, and then you realize that they really did want to just give this to you and you feel kind of stupid and you gush and you say, oh, thank you. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. And then you can see they feel awkward and they say, hey, it's my, my pleasure. I wanted to do it. And it dawns on you, they aren't just being courteous. They really meant it. God wants to say to every guilty, doubting, struggling, fearful heart today, listen, it's my pleasure to give you the kingdom. Just take it. It's it's for you. It's free. I grew up in an era, Sunday by Sunday, where we'd sing, you that are longing to see his face, will you this moment his grace receive? That's your part. That's what you do. You believe, you receive, you rely, and suddenly your heart wakes up spiritually. You start to breathe again. You start to enjoy your salvation. You start to rely on the love of God. And something else will happen. 
God's grace always comes like electricity comes. It carries more than just forgiveness. It carries power, transforming power. You'll start, it'll grow, you'll start to desire more than you desire money to be a lot holier as you begin to love God for his grace all over again. His mercies will lead you to a life of obedience, sacrifice, and service. You'll find the fear of the Lord starts to bring you a holy joy. I love these words from William Willimon. Listen to this quote. Unless grace is the foundation of all we believe about the Christian life, we're not going to get very far spiritually. People fail in their obedience not because the gospel is too good, but because we do not make it good enough. Only when people see how utterly amazing and lovely is the grace of God are they thankful enough, motivated enough, transformed enough to give their hearts, souls, minds to serve God. It's a great quote. And we've traveled a long way just to make this one point. Only Jesus Christ can bring assurance, the knowledge of God, and the knowledge that you're loved by God into your life. Grace is what changes people from the inside. It is amazing grace. Indeed. You that are longing to see his face, will you this moment, his grace, receive? Do that. When you do, uh, text our church, email us. You'll, Chris will talk to you later on. We'd love to help you. And church, rejoice in the transforming power of God's grace in our hearts. Let's pray. Only your word makes the gospel this big. Only God's love, not just talked about in general flowery terms, but only God's love focused on the rescue mission of Jesus Christ, God the Son, God incarnate, dying for our sins, rising from the dead, ascended to the Father, interceding on our behalf, and coming again. Only that grace can take a hard heart and make it a heart that loves to obey and follow the Lord. Bless this truth to all of our hearts, Keep us kind and sweet to one another. This grace that we've received. Let it reveal itself in graciousness to one another in the body of Christ. So we're not hypocrites, but your love flows out of our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray and I thank you. Amen. Amen. What a great text. Join us tonight, Soul Food. Uh, we want to talk about how you can grow in your appreciation and appetite for God's Word, how you can make that change in your heart. We'll be studying that tonight at 6.30. Keep the Sunday night thing alive. God bless you, church. Love one another.